0: Russell Hone on the show today, Aubergiste for Becky Wasserman Company. Hello, sir. How are you? Okay. So you were born in 1944. Yes. And your mother was a really good cook. Yes. She
1: was trained at the Doe School in Aberdeen and then came down and taught in London and ended up teaching in Cheltenham as governor of the North Gloucestershire Technical College and training chefs.
0: But this was during the war years and then the post-war years where there was... Rationing of food.
1: Rationing lasted until in England, until the mid 50s, which was crazy, far longer than should have been necessary. I remember seeing a newsreel later about how bananas in 1947, the first boat that arrived in Liverpool, and people going berserk.
0: Your parents had German friends.
1: I had started at uh, 12 or 13 going to Germany, doing an exchange with a family called von Lutichau Wernstein, and there were four boys. The eldest, Bernhard, was the same age as me, and he had a sort of farm around a, a modern sort of villa, and uh, I used to have fun driving the Volkspark, and when he went out at night with a rifle to shoot deer.
0: Did you speak German as a kid?
1: I didn't learn German until I went after school, having failed to pass into Oxford, like my elder brother, and he suggested I did something useful, which was to go to a Goethe Institute and learn German. So I went in '63 um, to Bad Reichenhall, which is just over the border from Salzburg, and stayed six months doing the Goethe Institute language course. I came back and took the Oxford things again, failed, and then took on a course at External London University degree, which was at the LSE. And I thought, uh, you know, would be academic. Then decided it was a waste of time. And during the course of that, I had been working for a woman, uh, Rennie Goddard at ATV, as script supervisor, which was sussing out whether the scripts that were being submitted for the soaps, whether the characters, fitted in because different people were writing different sections. So you didn't want the character of Mr. X changing from a raving murderer from one to a country vicar in the next. And that was the thing. But then couldn't get employed because the union stepped in and said there had to be a union appointment and one of those things in those days. How do you get work in the union if you're not allowed to be employed? And from there was hired to an advertising company making advertising films and things. And along the line there did a Covensport Port and Harvest Bristol cream ad and thought, why not um, do something in the wine trade? It spoke French, spoke German, must be useful. Thinking drink. And along the line met a guy called Fred May, who said, I'll take you on for a three-month trial. And then if I like you, I'll send you to Germany because you know nothing about wine, <laughs> and uh, which was perfectly true. I knew the shape of the bottles vaguely, and some were red and some were white, but um, at home we hadn't drunk that much red until my brother went to Oxford. But I remember somewhere along the line, I was probably about 12, and finding half-drunk bottles out by the dustbins and so-and-so, and swinging down and liking it quite a lot. And I do remember... For some curious reason it was Alox Courton 53, bottled by Joe Lyons and Company, and thought, Oh, this is quite good. But um, the only other thing I drank during the time was pinching wine from um, port decanter. And my father had uh, 27 Taylor and 27 Sandman, and uh, 1908, I remember the famous Coburn 08. I used to take swills from that. And luckily, the heavy cut glass. I was able to drink and not be found out because they couldn't see the level of the decanter.
0: And so you were off to Germany once again, but this time in the wine trade.
1: Yeah, that was in um, '69, having just got married. Went to Germany. I started with Adolf Reinhardt Schmitzner down at Longuech and then to the Priester Seminar on Trier and then to SA Prüm in Wehlen and then to Schlossvoratz and then finally to Wackenheim with Berklin-Wolf.
0: What was Walrands like at that time?
1: Very good stuff. They used to bottle up in the courtyard, and you used to shoot the bottles down on a sort of back of a, a buggy, like a sort of stripped-down jeep. And then you had to slide the bottles down along long flight of steps and then scurry along to the end of the cellar and build the wall of bottles. That so was very exhausting. But luckily, it was only one day that that happened. But very good. And I remember visiting Johannesburg, and Johannesburg was surprisingly, bits of black stuff would fall on your head as we were going around. And I said to Schadenberg, what is this? And he said, well, in these cars, they don't keep wine in them anymore. The wine is all kept out back in kunsthoff tank and fiberglass tanks. And uh, these wooden barrels are there for show. And so the Schimmelpinsel is dying. You know, the, the mold from the cellar has died from lack of fumes to keep it alive. And so then, ah, Schloss Johannesburg, ah, no good.
0: That was right at that time when the Rangau started to go down and the other regions started to go up.
1: Well, it was very difficult selling and people not um, getting enough money for doing stuff. We sold quite a lot uh fred may uh we imported a lot and so and so um by anybody's standards but the major market of course was for the the crap like Le milch and all that sort of sweet junk there was a thing from the moselle called Himmlisches mosel drops and heavenly mosel drops that sold something like eight million bottles or something a year but fine German wine was was sort of dying a bit
0: what are your memories about the old German wines?
1: If the cork has survived and it's been well-stored and so-and-so, you get amazing old German wine. Not just the super stickies. You open things, say, from the 60s and 70s, which are not anything more than spake or and they're still pretty good. The 21s I remember producing for uh, Cambridge Don, who was very much into German wine, I found a 21 Sichel Blue Nun Auslizer. And um, after we'd had this huge tasting or lunch with um, vintage Madeiras, I gave him a quick slug of this and he said, oh, it's got to be the 21 and just pang like that, you know.
0: What other vintages of German wines are you fond of?
1: 49, 53s were beautiful. 59s were beautiful and, you know, sweet things and so and so. In the 60s, 64, uh, Moselle, 64, 66, 71, great vintage. A changeover with the German wine laws and everything. It didn't F it up. 75s were actually good in the Moselle. Much more acidity and so-and-so. 76s for stickies.
0: And what was Mr. May like? Uh, quite a tough
1: boss. He'd had, a, I think, a rough passage he came over to England with uh, having um, joined the Pioneer Corps. He said to get out of Canada. He'd been in- interned in Canada. He said it was so bloody cold he'd do anything. So I think he came over and um, worked with the British Army in Germany. Either you know finding out who were Nazis or who weren't, and various unsavoury jobs like burying corpses and things like that that happened after the war. But you know, it was very mean uh, in terms of uh, payment and stuff, but he was a very good teacher, and he let me sort of get on with it. I was supposed to go to Bordeaux, but when I came back from Germany, I was briefly in Bordeaux, just beginning of 1970 before the 70 vintage, and a salesman had to have an eye cataract operation, so I was pushed out onto the road and had to cut my teeth selling, and we sold, and uh, was Bull's Blood, a Tokai, Balotoni Riesling, and uh, handing out uh, samples to ladies in supermarkets and say, oh, Bull's Blood, maybe it will give my old man a fillip or something, you know, get him going. Said, no, madam, you know, definitely but if you really want to get him going, give him a bottle of this Tokai, that will really, really get him uh, excited.
0: The Petunios effect. Yeah. <laughs> so, at some point around that time, you had this idea that maybe yeah. the colleges would be good to sell to.
1: Absolutely. What happened was, I said, Look, my brother had been uh, at Oxford, and then I said, Why don't I try and sell some wine to the colleges? I knew that there were other um, companies doing this, one called Dolomores, and there was then O.W. Loeb, and so and so. And uh, so that started. And um, was very successful because they were buying a massive, better but cheaper sort of German and a lot of fine as well because they would sometimes serve it with dessert, which means fruit and nuts basically after dinner. They also uh, served lots for, you know, parties and entertainment and stuff like that. That was fun. And also being able to talk to intelligent, you know, they wanted to pump me for info on wine, and I'd pump them on info on their subjects.
0: You attempted the MW exam in 76, and you passed tasting.
1: Yeah, I was 75 or 76. I forget which. And I passed the tasting part, and I decided not to take it again, because there was a very silly question about um, the percentages of acids and so-and-so in wines and grape varieties before and after fermentation and clue so I wrote I'm not a bloody chemist and so they said well I think you should be excused from taking the exam again and I said well that's fine because I'm not going to
0: when did you lead the tasting where the gentleman died oh that was while I was
1: working for FNU there was a a tasting club in uh, North London and I was asked to give a tasting on Burgundy I do remember that one of the bottles was a magnum of 55 Champs-Chambertin bottled by Berry Brothers. And I was asked to give a talk, and then we would go for dinner afterwards. And so got there, opened up the wines, checked them out, and so and so. And then I was up on the stage behind a lectern, and I started my speech by saying, as you all know, Burgundy is in the Middle East of France and so and so below Champagne and north of Lyon, if you take Beaujolais up to Chablis. And And at this point I heard somebody making a sort of noise. And I thought, oh, somebody's saying, oh, get on with it, you're wasting time. And of course we know this and so and so. And I started to smile because I saw the people in front of me smiling down on the thing, and then suddenly The sound got more sort of, and then I saw their faces fall, and then they realized so-and-so was having a heart attack, so they had to stop tasting. The ambulance came and took him away, and then it was voted. They had to take a vote on whether the thing should be totally abandoned or whether they should go on with the tasting. And they said, well, that's the wines have been open. We're not going to leave them. And I said, well, I'm not going to talk. I'm sorry after this. You can get on with the tasting. and count me out. And anyway, that's that's what happened. And apparently the poor guy died on the way to the, I never met him before, on the way to the hospital. And we went on with the dinner as well, which was also you, cheers to old Harry and so-and-so. <laughs> uh, it was quite macabre. Very unusual.
0: Next, you worked for Lafitte Concar. Yeah.
1: Concar had this, uh, I'd been to Bordeaux, but I said, you do something in Burgundy. And so, okay. Uh, I went out at the end of January. Clive, uh, Clive Coates was buyer for British Transport Hotels, and I hitched a ride out and uh, met Jean-Pierre Nier, who was boss of the, just been hired three months before, to head up Perry Périfise, as it was called then. It's now Le Compagnie des Vins d'Autrefois, And uh, I saw on his desk there was a list of old wines and going back to 06 Morachet And I said, what's this? And he said, oh, it's just old garbage being sold by a wholesaler down in Gugnon, sort of 100 kilometers south of here. And I said, this is old stuff. This is serious. Are they any good? And he said, oh, I haven't bothered. And I said, well, go down and see it. And both of us had a fiendish cold and so and so, but we got down there, and the wines were in a, an absolutely perfect cellar. There was all bins and bin numbered and everything, and lots of the old cellar mold, so you can taste whatever you like. So, I, so I'll have the 06 Morishay, and so the cellar man would go and check on his list and go back to the bin and came, and we wiped them off and tasted it, and, and these are fantastic. And I went rushing back, scuttling back to England, saying this is very good. I went to Michael Broadbent and said, would you sell these things? It isn't a huge quantity, but the wines are very serious. And I said, okay. And because I knew a news editor at the time, he's warned, and I said, you know, this is a thing. And so he sent out, the Guardian sent out Martin, somebody, and uh, wrote an article on the front page of the Guardian, liquid gold retrieved from the cobwebs, and a sort of murky photograph. Hey, you know, don't make the front page of the Guardian every day. And they said, we published the story because it was a nice story to publish instead of a nasty story. You know, it wasn't sort of, you know, three women murdered in a black cab. It was a nice story. And it went into a sale in June and so and so. And prices were not spectacular because it was a, an unknown name. You know, it, it wasn't a, a well-known um, negotiator or anything. And there were some old speech-wise, 45, 47, and this 06 and 35, shall I but in very good condition. And, uh... I had to convince the company to buy the stuff. So Clive said, if you say they're all right, I'll buy them. You know, I've been tasting with you for years and so and So he'd been my coach for the um, MW. He said, oh, I'll take five cases of this for the Malmaison Wine Club. And the best thing he ever did, there was a chunk of Hermitage going for three francs a bottle, 1929 Hermitage, which was sensational. Uh, and about. Ten or twelve cases of that. I regret not sort of uh, so to convince the Concar people that it was worth buying. I sort of outrageously high three, four, five hundred percent of prices that persuaded them to then buy the rest of the stock, and then we put the rest into Christie's. That was a fun thing. I um, <clears throat> was let go, as they say, by Concar eighty eighty one that started working for Loeb because. They wanted somebody to replace Anthony Goldthorpe, who'd been selling to the colleges. And so they knew that I was respected by the college people and so was asked to join. And uh, it took a long time to sort of decide. And I did. And uh, found very old-fashioned ways and um, difficulty in kind of fitting in Certain things that I said, you really shouldn't be selling these. I said, we should really send back the 77 Rousseau's because of the haze. They're completely impossible to do it. There was a theory that Charles Rousseau thought that bottles hadn't been properly washed.
0: The 77 Rousseau's were cloudy that year.
1: Yeah, they were cloudy. And you could not get them clear, even with coffee filter things. And when I heard that Wildman had sent them back, I said to Loeb, you know, you should really send them back, but they didn't want to sort of upset Charles and so-and-so, so had the job of trying to sell them, which was quite impossible. They weren't that bad to taste, but they were just totally murky. What was Loeb like as a company? The original company was founded by Otto Loeb, who came over as a refugee, in the 1930s. He also had a company called uh, Le Steinlein in Trier, and so we had a whole swathe of German wines. Then they came sort of rather later to Burgundy, when David Dugdale took over, bought the company, it was floundering, and they did a tiny bit of Bordeaux. I remember they got some Palmer, but they had a uh, a very curious thing. They used to not offer any, anything for sale until they got it over. So, when in 1982, they bought stuff on primeur, but they wouldn't sort of sell. And uh, very quickly, prices, you know, sort of tripled for the 82s, you know, demand from the States and same, very, very hot. And I said, why don't you, you know, sell some now instead of waiting to, you know, ship it for a year or thing and so on. So, anyway. I was not on the board of decision, and uh, I sort of was a bit sort of um, irritating And when uh, I wasn't supposed to go and taste the 82s with them, but one of their ex-partners, Frank Laws-Johnson, who'd been a um, banker in Paris, had a fantastic seller. I was asked to drive him down to join... Mr. and Mrs. Dugdale and Goldthorpe and his wife on their buying trip in the 82s because we used to buy a lot of pretty chateau, which colleges and things bought a lot of. So um, at the last moment, I was called to drive him down, and it was eighty-three when May and so and so when the riots were on, and so uh, my car, which was a French Peugeot estate was broken into first night and everything taken, which included a whole string of Krug and a mini vertical of Lea Wille that I got from my old company from Concar. And then the following night, the thing was broken into again and dog shit smeared all over the door handles and everything, which wasn't very nice. You know, revolting students and all that. And uh, I was told that I wasn't to expect to go to any of the dinners and so I fixed up one night to go to supper with Jean-Eugène Vaury at ducre but when uh, the war drums had beaten and they were told that I was there your young man must join us for dinner so you must come to this dinner so I blew off Jean-Eugène and said I'm terribly sorry but I Duty calls and so on. So, said, that's where right. I come and taste the wines first and then go a bit late to your dinner. And then turned up. And what really put noses out of joint was that all the people were there who I knew terribly well from having worked for Concar. So, there was the people from Montrose, people from um, La Font I think said, oh, Russell, 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 Russell. And I did not go down a treat when. Um, the star of the show should be the bosses, you know. You have to be very careful. And I wasn't. And also, when you guess things right and they don't and so and so, that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> not very diplomatic.
0: You worked on a book series with Richard Olney.
1: He was doing the, the Good Cook series, and he wanted somebody to scout for wine for him when in London because it was all filmed and shot in London. And so I was put on to him by somebody, and we became very good friends, and so helped him buy old stuff at Christie's, and supplied wines from him from the trade. When he said, you know, we need, say, a of wine, I knew to go to Loeb, as it happened, for the Baudet, um, Chateau Chalon, or um, Dangeville, which was also low, actually, at the time. And um, then the final book, which we did, was the wine book. uh, And worked on with him with this massive scale of vintage chart with things from everywhere. And Richard, his favorite tipple was Glenn Morangi. And so we would punish off a lot of Glen Morangi doing this sort of table at one time. A lot of people came to lunches during the course of the book being photographed there, so Elizabeth David and Sybil Bedford and and then uh, Jeremiah Tower did the dessert book and so-and-so, so a lot of people would uh, come and um, have lunch or, or supper and so-and-so and food which was cooked would use up some decent wine, so there was a, a budget. So that was great fun.
0: What was Richard only like?
1: He didn't suffer fools gladly he could be quite quick tempered if he thought people saying something or doing something was very stupid, uh, would occasionally, you know, snap. But um, I uh, got on okay and drove him back when he was closing down the apartment. I stayed out in, uh, in London. I stuffed the uh, Persever State car with old wine and um, we did a sort of leisurely trip down to his place in, uh, sorry, yes, Tucas, And uh, we got to the customs, and I thought, oh, I haven't done anything, no declaration on my honor that this is all my stuff. And so, so I thought, oh, my God, if they say there's all this wine, there are all these books, there are all these papers, we sort of covered up the wine with the papers and so on. So and at that time, you're supposed to do all these declarations if you're moving your stuff. Anyway, we drove straight through and I heaved a sigh of relief. And we got down to Burgundy and had a massive tasting of Latache. We had supper with Pamela and Aubert that night. And then we drove down to a wonderful lunch, I remember, at Ely in Avignon, Ely Lucullus. And he said, Do you know why this will never make three stars? And he said, The food. And I said, well, That's ridiculous. He said, Well, first of all, he has women. Servers who were very elegant sort of um, elegantly dressed ladies serving and B he said it's on the first floor and so uh, you know you can't have three stars with ladies serving and so and and, you know Michelin won't allow it and then we got down to Sol Yes stay and I stayed a few days and so and so and um, the place where he lived um, was sort of like the cave uh, the cave and then they sort of glass-fronted kind of thing, and a little garden. And he'd hacked out a cellar in front of the, uh, of the rock. So you went down, you had to be careful of tarantulas or bugs or things and so and so, which uh, was very cold and damp and wet and so and so, where he kept his wine. It was very generous. And we went over the next day because he didn't drive, Richard didn't drive. And uh, so we went over and had lunch at Tompier's. Uh, who are really great friends of his, really like second family there.
0: And he was a good cook, obviously.
1: Oh, yeah, he was a very good cook. You know, what he said was, keep it simple in terms of, you know, use the best ingredients you've got. Don't try and do sort of really fancy things unless you've got sort of like all the equipment or all the necessary bits and pieces. You cannot do the kind of food, micromanaged, as I call it, Without a really full scale kitchen with sophisticated equipment, you cannot get the same sort of result.
0: You had met Becky Wasserman in 1983.
1: Yes, we met at a wine tasting in London. <laughs> well, we were in the, I think, the Cavalry Club or somewhere in there, and a very small room, and we were standing very close together because there was a crowd. We were quite close. And I had a striped shirt and a suit, and it may be a bow tie. I used to wear bow ties because when you were tasting, you didn't dribble it down your tie. Anyway, and so she uh, said she was overcome. She said, I swooned. And the only thing I could say, and sort so me is I do like your shirt. So I said, oh, very nice lady. Thank you very much. And we talked for a bit, and then that's charming. I'd heard a bit about her. And then I knew the next day she was going to be tasting for Daily Telegraph. And I knew she was going back to Burgundy on Thursday. So I thought, a no, very charming lady. So I went to German Street, where by the offices, and bought her a shirt and tie and presented them to her at this tasting in this wine bar in Victoria. She blushed violently. And um, then we sort of, left it at that for a while before we laid on a tasting at stevensbury's wine bar which was a disaster because it was so boiling hot that day and i'd invited becky because i knew she knew a lot of the people and um so she came and um we had a kiss and a cuddle at one point but that was it and then uh, didn't see each other until the following year, I think, when she came to London and she had a tooth abscess, and she was in dire distress, so I took her up to my friend, Howard Ripley. She wouldn't have the tooth out, but she wanted to get back to France to have it taken out. Anyway, she came and stayed with me in the flat, my flat in London, and he said, if it's swollen the next day, immediately and her face had joined her shoulder at the end of her shoulder it was ghastly so I whisked her up there he said I'm going to keep her with me keep her under observation so he took her to his home and fed her tomato soup and au Brion 59 and eventually she went back to France the next time I think we saw would have been saw each other was 84 when one of the Lalou splendid tastings and it was Mazzy Chambotin and Laveau Saint-Jacques of assorted vintages back to the 1930s and the idea was you had a little booklet and you had to try and guess which was which and uh, Howard had driven out with me to buy some wine and so and so and we shared a room at a little hotel called Home. So he went to bed. I got back after this mega-tasting drunk as a skunk, fell into bed and snored away like mad. And the next morning I went into the bathroom and found him asleep in the bath. He said, Russell, you don't know how badly you snore. But not only did I had to practically suffocate myself with a pillow to get rid of your snores, he said I had to get out of here and so and so. Anyway, we remained friends forever. And um, then the next time I said, I'm coming to be inducted into Compagnon de Beaujolais, the 21st or 22nd of December. Will you come with me? He said, No, no, but come for Christmas. So I was dumped by the auto route with half a Stilton and brought up here for Christmas of '84. And that is when we say in your country, we got it on. And um, I spent Christmas, stayed until her birthday on the 18th, and she went off to the States selling. I came back to England, and then uh, came out on March. Howard drove me out again on a deck chair in the back of the van, and uh, I came with just a large plastic bag having uh, clean knickers and, and trousers. And so she thought, oh, my God, he's not going to stay, and I did. And then we got married in 89.
0: And the witness at the marriage was an older woman who you'd become friends with?
1: Yes, was Armand Montlidure, was my uh, witness, and Michel Lafarge for Becky. Uh, one, you know, you say witness, it's like sort of, you don't really have a best man. You have witnesses. And she was somebody you ought to know, a lovely lady. She died in her 90s, and very feisty, and she used to have these, there was a staircase down into the cellar which had three sort of things where you had to duck your head. And usually these cellars just have two. But hers had three. And so if she would ask me when we were bringing people around, is he, what nationality is she and so-and-so, if he's British or American, so-and-so, I'll tell them, make sure you don't miss the third one. If they're German, I don't tell them about the third thing that might bonk their heads on in because uh, she'd had somebody, you know, villeted during the war and everything. And uh, she made the famous remark to a group of young sommeliers who were describing all the fruit essences and flavors and things and so and so. But don't you smell any grapes? You know wine is made from grapes.
0: And this is about the time you started to go around and do more tasting in Burgundy.
1: Yeah. Well, I did uh, um, quite a bit of tasting with Uh, Jean-Pierre but not to domains or not to many domains in the period when I was there from uh, 78 through 81 and then uh, came over here and then started tasting uh, well Dominique Lafon was working just for a while for Becky at that point and we had customers mainly Americans and a few Brits and you know you took people around to taste at various domains
0: the 80s was really a change period for domain bottled burgundy.
1: Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, Pinot Noir became popular, uh, even with Parker touting for heavy, over things and massive stuff. At least the drum was being beaten for Pinot Noir, even if, you know, a lot of the things were not particularly to my taste or not to our taste. At least, you know, as a lot of people say about Parker, he did publicize booze. Because it, I remember, you know, it was hard going back in uh, uh, selling Burgundy because it wasn't Bordeaux. It wasn't easy. It wasn't considered simple. And there were a lot of um, sort of variations. And so people really didn't know what to buy or to put on or so and so. Only a few really well-educated sommeliers or buyers or so-and-so who knew what the real goodies were.
0: What are the, some of the key seller visits that you remember over that 30-year period? Well, it's always fun to go to
1: uh, Romani Conti, Lafarge, and We always got something nice to drink at the end. Pousteau always used to sort of phase you by producing things like the half-bottles of 66, you'd, you'd finish having drunk a sort of 1990 Boustor, and then you'd go and you'd drink a 66-half-bottle of saint Gravier or the Taverne and so-and-so, which would be extraordinary because it would be so good, so young, that you just were groping in the dark uh, in terms of trying to guess the vintage. There was a wonderful old character called Andre Moussi in Pomar, and that was absolutely a splendid visit always. The wines were quite rustic and so and so, but we sold them quite well for a time, we would say really sort of old-fashioned. Had the most incredible hands, they were sort of like size of meat plates, were really sort of gnarled. Poor bastard had been captured at the beginning of the war and spent, ended up in Russia it didn't come back from Russia until forty-seven. from prisoner in sort of East Germany and then Russia or whatever. A splendid old character. Becky took him and his wife to, we went on a trip to the States, and we got down to Los Angeles. We went to Spargo's, I think it was my birthday or thing. And here's this guy, really sort of, not, you know, red chiseled sort of features in a black leather sort of jacket. And of course the paparazzi thought, this old guy's got to be one of the stars of the stage and screen and so and so. And he said, what are they doing? He said, well, you look so mediatic. And so he said, oh, I, I don't think so. that was a was the thing. There was a wonderful old character called Mademoiselle Pitoise Irena in Merceau. And um, she was a quite a large, substantial woman. And she had this tiny little dog and there was a big notice saying, beware of the dog. And so when you looked around, out came this large woman, you looked around, and the dog was about the size of her foot, a tiny little thing, and so and so. So <laughs> beware of the dog was a total joke. And she made some bits and pieces of stuff, and then her brother took over the domain. La Fontaine, as I remember, used to be incredibly, before they changed the cellar, it was the coldest bloody place on the face of the earth, really Ross monkey cellar, practically icicles hanging off the wall. And the other place was um, <laughs> the funny one with Ponceau, who used to sell the old man Ponceau, not, not Laurent. And he had cellars, which were there were some down in the village, close to the village. But the first time I went to visit one of those sort of Burgundian things, I said, oh, my wonderful French, Où on se trouve, Monsieur Ponceau? And the guy pointed sort of behind, he was down in the square in the finish, and said, oh, it's up by the old walnut tree. So I drove up and drove up. Couldn't see an old walnut tree or any tree at all. So I drove down again. So the old guy said, you told me to look for an old walnut tree, and can you describe the house more, because there doesn't appear to be a tree up there. So said, well, it's a long house, and so, so, like that. And I said, oh, when I got up there, there was a stump Uh, Where the old walnut tree had been. Uh, And the guy had obviously not been up there for a thousand years because he knew it was up where the old walnut tree was. And uh, that was the very cold setup. And then there's another character uh, also in in Maurice Saint Denis uh, called Castanier, who uh, farmed the. He married Madame Betty, He was a Pied Noir from North Africa, a very strong accent. And um, I got to know him. And being foreign, you learn to sort of catch, listen very hard when everybody's speaking French with accents. And I went the first time with um, a friend here called Jean-Yves And he said, I don't understand a word he's saying. Can you translate for me? So here is an Englishman translating for a Frenchman who spoke sort of with a very strong accent from North Africa. He had a slew of really, really good wines. Um, the, uh, Chris Newman inherited them from his father. And uh, he had Mazie Chamartin, a lot of Grand Cru. And
0: um, we were selling those until the early 90s. And uh, he was a character.
1: Uh, Ecoute, Jojo. I don't make wine for the. Uh, short-term. So he's a grand crew, and they should be grand.
0: You would have known Angel, right, in Von Romane.
1: Yes. Oh, he was very special. And if he was in the mood, we would uh, start with the current vintage and then work back through to sometimes the 1900 ones or twos we've had. It's the only time I've had uh, 44, or well, twice I've had 44, saint Georges from Gouge and forty-four, Bouge from Angel. but he used to you go back by decades. So he was born in fifty-five. So in an absolutely fabulous fifty-five, Claude Buge, and then you go back forty something, whatever was there, forty-nine or forty-seven. Select something, and then something from the thirties, something in the twenties, twenty-three or something. I remember on one occasion, and then something like a seventeen or a fifteen or something. Uh, and um, there was this one friend who paid the mouth organ, who was in the wine trade. and I'd been a salesman up in New York, and he got the mouth organ going, and that got Phil Angell popping those corks. Becky <laughs> knew that I would be back late with whoever was coming for supper if, if it was Angell tasting. And to me, it was one of the he, he was a very uh, special guy, quite quiet. But very, sort of, you think he was very serious, but was sort of really kindly underneath. He died too young.
0: Did you ever taste that Comte de Vogue?
1: Yes, uh, not until the new order came in uh, 1990, uh, 89, 90, and so and so. I used to buy. Old De Burgoyne wines, which were quite cheap, if they were in mixed lots at Christie's, and I bought a magnum of the forty-five. This is going back to nineteen sixty-eight, seven uh, sixty-eight. A magnum of the forty-five from De Virgue for it was ten pounds, English money back then. At Nicola were doing one of their Christmas sales. And I bought a magnum of La Mission au and a magnum of de Burgoy, Viervin, in Usigny back then, a ridiculous price, and so on so, and so, and so, and so, and so. Oh, It was magnificent. But they were always, there. was a wonderful 47, 52, 53. There was a period in Christie's when if you bought mixed lots, nobody wanted mixed lots. And if it was assorted, uh, you know, even DRC and so-and-so, I remember a mixed case, not of Remi Conti, but other things, and it went for not very much money, and I used the Eschazo 055 to make a gravy because it was slightly oxidized.
0: <laughs> and I assume you know uh, Francois Jobard.
1: Yes, very much so. I started tasting there a long time, and what's changed is that he used to keep wine in cask much longer than now. And the style has changed quite a lot. You know, modern, punchy minerality as opposed to rather sort of softer and just different, sort of um, softer wines.
0: And you met Jasper Morris?
1: I think I probably gave a wine lecture to Jasper Morris when he was still at Oxford, running one of the wine circles. He worked for a man after Oxford called Johnny Goodhouse. And he worked at Goodhouse in Kings Road. And I went there, and Jasper was there stacking the shelves. And then he set up his own company, which was down near Victoria Station. I actually started buying off him. (laughs) I remember buying off him Bonizo, 47 from, uh, was it Chateau de Fell or somebody like that, absolutely fabulous. <laughs> it was very cheap, and I bought it, and then he was embarrassed because he thought he had much more and said, you really hogged the best wine of the thing. And I said, well, I'm not going to buy any, anything but the very best, Jasper. <laughs> I am supporting your fledgling company. After all, you should be, should be thankful.
0: Clive used to come over a lot, Clive Coates, right?
1: Clive, when he discovered that I was living here with Becky, said, well, you don't mind putting me up, do you? And so for a long time would come and use this place as his bed and breakfast, or bread, breakfast, and dinner, uh, while writing the vine, doing the vine.
0: There was an infamous tasting with you, Clive Coates and Freddie, right?
1: Oh, yeah. No, that was when Clive was doing his book on Burgundy we went along to Lou to do verticals of Volney sentenot Claude Emilia, and Marie Chambetain. And she'd put the bottles on barrels, like sort of four or five yards inside this cellar. And we were tasting away and so and so. And at that time, she had Freddie, who was um, an extremely vocal, who was sort of very crotchety, to say the least, and who was always yapping. This is her dog. This is dog, Freddie. She always used to find dogs by the side of the road and adopt them uh, on her way back. There was then there was Basil, who then came later, who was a floppy sort of spaniel, that's in, on her way back from Monaco or whatever. And Freddie was one of these adopted things, and Freddie was a sort of scruffy tailor. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I smelt it first, and so moved away up into the cellar, and Clive was saying, uh, oh, this one is on a very heavy reduction. And that is absolute nonsense, Clive. You don't know what you're talking about, and so and so. And then suddenly, oh, Freddy, naughty boy, Freddy. And so we had to sort of evacuate for a while, while the oily cloud left by Freddy was allowed to dissipate.
0: And when did you visit Mom?
1: Mid-90s, because we bought some 93s. And it was the stinkiest, filthiest cellar I've seen ever with mold and water puddles and things. And, and knowing him to be professor of oenology at Dijon, thought this very surprising, that this, this thing. But the wines are quite good and tough and so and
0: so. So how do you like to taste red burgundy? Because you're a real good taster.
1: Well, first of all, I don't like tasting red wine in barrel before malolactic's finished. I don't like it because I find that the first impression I get of a wine sticks with me. So if I go to a cellar and it's or well, one still in Mallow, one isn't, etc., etc., I find it very hard to evaluate. And secondly, i much prefer that the wine is finished and maybe has had a racking. If it hasn't had a racking, then it's, you know, been left, sort of completely so that it's like spring, uh, I will taste happily in April and May, by which time, you know, the wine has gone through win- one winter. Or even better, when it's like the next autumn, so to taste when it's had, you know, a full, full year. Obviously, you get a general sort of impression of the vintage and the wines and so and so. But to actually say, you know, this wine is... I mean, one of the most fascinating things, having tasted a lot at Fred Meunier's, how the wine went up and down, up and down, up and down, and sometimes tasting, you know, three times or four times in the space of four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, to notice the differences there, and how he was saying, I'll tear the rest of my hair out soon because I can't get a handle on it. Well, the other thing is when the Freezing cold, I find it very difficult to, to taste. So that's the main thing. Just basically, I'd like to taste the wine a year old before then pontificating as to whether it's going to be good or not.
0: And what about the Burgundy vintages that you remember? Oh, the great ones I've had. Uh,
1: we once had the 1864 at Pommard Claude de That was exceptional. But the Pommard 15, a 23... Richborg, but then later we were lucky to find some 37 Becky's vintage of the auspice from Giro and had that on a number of occasions. It was a really good and a really sort of firm vintage. And then post-war 45, 47, uh, 49, 49 seems had less, but it's sort of like the perfect perfect child. And then I like 53. As I say, I remember it from the dustbins. And um, 59. 62. Really good. Underrated. Much better than 61. 64, 66. I like 69. I fight with Becky over this one because I think it was okay. 78. 83 turned out much better, but 85 is my... I think is perfect. People were rude about it at the time. They said it was no acidity, it wouldn't last. And I think 85, you know, it's been well-sellered and so-and-so is still perfect. Um, 88 for Tuffy. Uh, 91, 93. is curious and it hasn't lived up to the great expectations. It's all right. But, um, and then 99, uh, pretty good. In the 2000s, oh five, and they're still not really ready, um, the better ones. 2007, I think, was pleasant.
0: Oh nine, still unready. It seems like certain villages have become a little more esteemed in the market, at least the American market, since you were here in the 80s. It seems like Volnay, Maurice Denis, people talk about them more now.
1: Back then, on the, on the English market, I mean, going way back, the wines that we could sell when it first started back in the late 60s and so-and-so, people wanted Alex Corton, Nuit, and in Cote de Beaune, it would be Pommard. And it's been a complete switch. Volnay, you couldn't sell it, was considered a wimp. And Chambon-Moussini, the same. Um, Maurice Saint-Denis, nobody knew what the hell it was about. Uh, you know, every Every Chambotin has always been pretty good. But if you were looking at sort of other things, people, certainly on the English market, there was much more for rather butch toughies rather than smooth and sexy. And that's been a complete sort of vault fast of popularity. And now Pomar is relatively difficult. People are leery of Pomar because they think it might be too tough. And Volney are certainly sort of Cream the reputation of Pomar.
0: It seems like, in general, the ideal for red burgundy these days is a little more elegant and fine, whereas it used to be a little more heavy in the popular imagination, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. The English palate for burgundy, not sort of a high end, uh, tended to be based on butch claret. And so, if it wasn't butch like claret uh, and rather tough and tannic, I mean, look at the way. Same thing's happened with Bordeaux. It's completely detanacized itself. And the same way that people would look for big, vigorous Burgundies back in that period, and now we're actually getting real Burgundy, much less sort of doctored stuff. It's not being beefed up by the vin or things. People, you know, have been weaned to proper Burgundy, which is smoother and sexier i think that's one of the things that people have left things to ripen more
0: so you were in burgundy in in that period of time where there was a lot of change generationally winemaking styles what really surprised you over that to me the biggest
1: change has been the use of the sorting table you know, they're all sort of uh, the oxidation effect and whether that was corks whether it was vertical presses, do, do, presses do, 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 I don't know. There's so many theories on that. The one thing is that now people do try and put the healthy grapes in and not the mixture that used to be. The green ones for acidity, the moldy ones for with, for the sugar, and the ripe ones for the wine. You know, the tripartite sort of thing for... Uh, and that was when people were producing lots of shit for the merchants, the negotiants, who were then going to correct it with the Van de médecin, with stuff from Chateauneuf or down south or whatever, North Africa. And so now people are doing that. Everybody's cleaned up. Everybody's very careful not to F up a clean wine. I mean, you look back, okay, in the time that I do, you look at disastrous vintages. There seem to be fewer disasters, but you look at the 60s, 63, 65, 68, a total disaster. In the 70s, 75, 72 was pretty acidic, but it, you know, then it turned out better. 77 was ugly. In the 80s, which is an ugly vintage, a poor vintage is 84, uh, but not horrendous. And then in the 90s, again, I don't know what, you'd consider the most horrendous vintage of the 90s. There really hasn't been one. No really atrocious weather, except recently, you know, there's been the 11, 12, 13, uh, 14 period. Vintages have been very um, scarce rather than unripe or totally unripe or totally unsalable.
0: You like a good distillate. And when I first came here, you told me some thoughts about Bourgogne distillates in terms of what were the good ones and why.
1: I think you need fine rather than ma. Ma always remains like distilled old boots, leather boots, because that's just the smell or graph of the same sort of thing. You can get incredibly good fiend. The finest is actually, I believe, from white wine, and Pierre Morey's fiend, de Bourgogne is just brilliant and will rival a lot of
0: cognacs. The key there is white grapes, not red. I think so. I feel like one of the changes when I talk with you about wine is that some of the other regions of France are making better wine or more interesting wine than they used to make when you were starting your career. There's
1: much better stuff on the Loire. I used to sort of really hate vouvres and Sommures and things. I think basically because people used to pump so much sulfur in that they were not really nice. And the other sort of passion wine-wise would be, you know, good turned, but then it's so out of fashion that um, nobody even bothers to think about it, unfortunately. And um, the wine that I in the world that I love the best was port, but Anything now post 1970 to me is like a sort of ruby or tawny without having any depth or character. Whereas when I was pinching it as a small boy, smallish boy, from the decanter, it had what I called a cough mix to taste. And when I got to start tasting vintage ports until 77, they had this cough mixture taste. And post that time, everything I taste now has been sort of like smoothed up for. Quick consumption—you no longer have sort of massive black strap port that needed time to throw a crust and be kept twenty years before you even started looking at it to see whether how it was coming along. The perfect vintage after the war was forty-eight, much better than forty-fives because a lot of them were bottled badly. And really good forty-eight Taylorford, Secker and Graham. The forty-sevens were too hot, so. If Faded, and after that you have fifty-five, but really then sixty-three, and very nice, 60 sixty-six, and so and so can be still very nice, and seventy, but after seventy, forget it. People say seventy-seven is going to be wonderful, but it's not.
0: When did Mark De Grazia show up? Marco, we met in nineteen eighty-eight
1: when we went to Piedmont because we'd never been, and. Under the auspices of Marco, we tasted Clerico, Scavino, Altari, all the Barolo boys that he had, and so we had a great time and um, remained great friends ever since.
0: What was Domenico Clerico like back then?
1: Oh, splendid! He spoke Piedmontese. He would not speak, uh, and he and I would converse somehow. Becky would say, I don't understand what he's saying. And Marco would say, I don't understand what he's saying half the time. But he and Russell seemed to get on terribly well. A very, very warm and wonderful person known as Leone, the lion, because he was quite uh, dramatic and fought off cancer twice. And then, you know, they had this tragedy with their daughter who died.
0: When did Rusty Staub come along?
1: Rusty came about 20 years ago, or 21 years ago, 86-ish. And then, you know, we made friends, and then he started coming back. And then, gradually, uh, when he sort of got going with the, I'm not sure when the auction started, he would come and spend time with us, and we would organize the tastings for him of the various people who he bought from and then would stay here with us and so on. so We had to, his breathing got very difficult. He had to sleep in a chair, sleep upright. So he had a big armchair that he slept in and just became a very good friend. And occasionally we've been on trips with him. We went to Piedmont with him and come and the thing, go on a, a jaunt with him. It became a very good friend, very close. He was an amazing character. And the joke we had is that he was born, another 44, he was born on the 1st of April, and I was born on the 25th. So on the 1st of April, he would call up and say, you've now got to call me sir for the next three weeks. So I would say, aye, aye, sir, aye, aye, sir. And call up on the 25th. Now you can stop calling me sir, mon frere. He used to call me mon frere. And died just, a few days before it, Birthday last year. Big gap to everybody. And one of the most amazing things, and I still get tearful when I think about it, was after 9 11, because he was in a building down there in the battery next to the things. And when it happened, he, started, he said, I started running and I ran all the way uptown and didn't stop with the, you know, debris and so and so floating around me and choking the air.
0: Russell Hohn went from food rationing to allocated burgundy. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, sir. Russell Hohn, the aubergiste of Becky Wasserman Company. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Ra Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Becky Wasserman and Russell who welcomed me to their home. While I conducted this interview, it meant a lot to me on a personal level, and it allowed this interview to happen. Could you do some impressions for us?
1: Do some Irish, I'd like.
0: Well, if you, you think of drink, you've got to drink
1: a lot of drink while you're thinking of it. And if you don't think a drink while you're drinking it, it's a shame, because you can't describe it later when you're completely blotted, when you've gone over the top, and you're out for the count. And they say, well, what was the drink like? And they said, "I they don't remember because they didn't have enough of it.
0: Can you do Liverpool? Oh,
1: well, Liverpool's a bit like that. You know, I was a beetle once in my old days. But the nastiest accent in England is Birmingham. I'm from Birmingham, and I think it's terrific, Oh, this wine, but it's red. I don't like red wine. I think it should be brown or yellow or white even. depends on the meal. You know, you get some sore turns with your your scampi and chips. Lovely.
0: Did you ever uh, meet any East Enders, London East End? Oh, hang about.
1: Russell. He's a good boy, that Russell. You've got to take him. Uh, He comes to our garage. He comes in and he says, I want a car done over, spark plugs renewed. I don't have his spark plugs in stock. So what I do is I squirt WD and say, You've got your new your new plugs, Russell. That'll cost you twenty quid.
0: Have you ever met any Welsh people?
1: Oh, look, you diebach, Oh, down the valleys. It's where they sing all the
0: time. You ever meet any Oxford dons? Yeah. Oh,
1: this wine's absolutely
0: darling,
1: wouldn't you say, George?